You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. New City family, good morning. morning. Y'all ready? Let's go. Mark, yeah, okay. Welcome back, students. Welcome back, everybody. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, We are in the middle of a series called Questions from Jesus. Um, You're not going to be behind if you're just jumping in this week, okay? We are examining what are some of the core questions that Jesus lays before people um, in Scripture. And here's the reason we're doing that, okay? Um, Whoever's asking the questions is the one in the driver's seat, right? You know this, right? You've heard of a leading question, right? A question exposes us. It shows what's going on on the inside. It pulls it to the outside. And Jesus was a master at this. And so what we're trying to do is just put Jesus in the driver's seat for a while and say, what would it look like to think of spiritual growth, not in terms of you getting all of your questions answered, Hear me, I want you to ask the questions. The questions matter, they're important, all of the things, okay? But what we're saying right here is when you let Jesus begin to question you, you're going to find out what's actually going on in your heart. You let Jesus expose you this morning. I want you to hear me. Jesus is like a surgeon. He cuts like a surgeon with precision and to heal. He does not cut like a butcher, Jesus doesn't ask you questions to destroy you. He's actually going to ask you questions to free you this morning, okay? We are Bible people around here. We, we, we love this book because we get to hear God's voice. So here's what I want us to do. Here's what we do every Sunday. Will you stand in reverence for the reading of the word? I know you got all your stuff on your lap. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 10, we will pick up in verse 35. Mark chapter 10. Verse 35, try to find the question from Jesus here. It says this, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. But Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left, that is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to, uh, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." This is God's word. You can have a seat. Did you catch the question? 
Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Whether you are a Christian or not, you've likely had this as a daydream, right? If you, if you had an audience with the all-powerful, all-knowing being of the universe, and you could ask for anything, you've played that out your, in your head, right? It's like the question of like, if I won the lottery, what would I do? Like spending money you don't have kind of a situation. When James and John, our dear friends, when they get the opportunity to ask Jesus for anything, did you notice what they asked for? They ask for the things that seem to make the world go round, power and glory. A seat at the right hand and left hand. Those are positions of influence, of power, of notoriety. That's what, these are the things they believe would make them whole. Man, if I have a position of greatness, of influence, of mattering, that's what's really gonna fill me. I want you to notice something really important here. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for having ambition. He doesn't even rebuke them for wanting to be great. But here's what he does do. He flips their understanding of what greatness actually is on its head. Turns it upside down. Here's the big point this morning. Jesus reframes our definition of greatness and our relationship with ambition. That's what the living Christ does. Can I ask you, what is your definition of greatness? What is a great life? A life that matters, a life that counts. You've got one that's operating in the back of your mind and your heart, whether you realize it or not. If you're a college student in this room, you did not get to the U of I by being a slouch, right? You took that ACT. Any 29s or above in the room, right? No, you don't have to raise your hand, I'm kidding you. <laughs> right, there's part of you that's here because you go to the University of Illinois. You have ambition, there is something in you driving you forward. You have an operating picture of greatness in your mind. Can I tell you this morning, however pure your motives for greatness or ambition might feel this morning, Jesus is going to mess with every person in this room. So let's tune in for a second. Let's think. Think it through. Let Jesus tweak our reality. You see, I am no different than James and John. I have spent the first part of my life in many significant ways wanting to be great. Wanted to be great. One of my life to matter. The earliest, in fact, the earliest message that I remember hearing on repeat was, was this. Nick, God is going to use you to do great things. You're special. And now hear me. I'm, I'm not dogging on the people who said those things to me. Like my mom is probably watching this sermon. You didn't mess me up, mom, okay? That's not, not what I'm trying to say here. It was a gift to have people encourage me. But here's what happened. When I heard that word great, I loaded a broken definition of greatness into that sentence and it shaped the trajectory of my life. It launched a type of ambition in me that I'm still in recovery from. An ambition that braces the world's way of greatness rather than Jesus. Can I tell you some good news this morning if you're like me? 
Your Lord Jesus did not just preach true greatness. Look at me right now, this is important. He was true greatness. He is true greatness. The king of the universe, the one who stood over a blank canvas when there was nothing, who went forth and created the world, the one who built atoms, the one who built molecules, the one who built the beautiful mitochondria, right? Where are my biology students at? You know that beauty, right? The powerhouse. The one who knit those things together lowered himself to serve sinners. The one who is worth all the glory in the universe chose to lower himself to rescue you. Friends, this is what some people refer to as the great exchange. Jesus takes all of your sin, your brokenness, your corrupt motivations, and they're credited to him as if they're his own. And all of his purity, all of his right standing with the Father is credited to you simply by believing the gospel. If you receive Christ, you need to hear me, all the greatness of God rescues you from the greatness of your sin. And anyone can get in on that today. Anybody. Y'all ready to have Jesus mess with your ambition a little bit? That was all pre-sermon. We're getting to the sermon now though, okay? It's happening. Three points I want us to work through that the text is gonna show us today. Number one, we're gonna see broken ambition. We're gonna see what it looks like broken. Number two, we're gonna see ambition redefined. And then three, we're gonna see the ambition of Jesus himself. What was his ambition? Let's unpack it. Point number one, broken ambition. Look back at the Bible. It says in verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Bold ask, right? Hey, just do whatever we want. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, you've either got to like applaud or roll your eyes at this level of boldness, right? Like you just show up and say, hey, I, I've been thinking about it and I know you own everything. I know you can do everything. I know you're all powerful. I would really like a blank check on that payroll. That would be just right, just whatever I want. That's how they show up right here. And Jesus indulges the request. You see that? What do you want me to do for you? There's Jesus, again, using that question like a scalpel. He's cutting straight to the heart here to see what's going on beneath the service. You see, when Jesus asks a question, it is not because he lacks information. It is because the answer forces the person answering the question to grapple with who they actually are. They're not about to waste this blank check. You see, whatever they ask for to this question from Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? It is the thing they most desire. It is the top of the list. It is the thing they believe will actually satisfy the deep longings of their soul. It is their main ambition in life. It's their main ambition. 
I don't want you to miss this this morning. It's not just for them, it's for you. Whatever your answer to Jesus's question, what do you want me to do, is going to tell you what your operating definition of greatness is. Like, think about that. It's gonna tell you what's going on inside of you. Whatever you picture as the future where you are fulfilled, where you are whole, where you are truly happy, that is your working definitions of greatness. Verse 37 tells us James and John's definition. It says, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus, will you give us positions of power? Give us positions of glory in your kingdom. That answer is showing us their broken ambition in two important ways. I want you to see this. Number one, They thought the kingdom of God was a political kingdom, that Jesus was gonna come, he was gonna overthrow the Romans, and they were like, man, we would really like to be on the back end of the spear, not the receiving end of the spear in this kingdom coming to bear, so we would really like to sit next to you. Like, we'll be your hype man, Jesus. When you're leading the new kingdom in, when you're ushering it in, we'll go, yeah, what he said, absolutely, we'll stand next to you. In John 18, 36, Jesus tells us this is not what the kingdom is about. His kingdom is about destroying a far greater oppressor than the Roman government. It is about destroying sin, death, and hell forever. They misunderstood this. They didn't understand what true greatness was. The second thing, the way they misunderstood greatness, they thought greatness was something that you rose to. They thought greatness was like, man, I'm going I'm to work a little bit. I'm going to pay my dues with Jesus. I'm going to say really Jesus-y things. And then he's going to promote me a little bit. If I can get to that middle, middle management level deal in Jesus' kingdom, that's going to be perfect. But Jesus, what he's going to unpack for us is that greatness is not something you rise to. It's actually something you descend to. They wanted more people to look up to them. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be important. They thought that's what it meant to matter. They even wanted to be feared. Do you see that in your own heart? Want to matter. Now we may be looking, we may not be looking for a place of political influence like these guys were, but our ambition gets just as twisted. Like, tell me if this sounds like the soundtrack in your old head, in your own head leading up to this semester. If I just, if I get that degree, I'm finally going to be content. Like, I've just got to make it to this next leg in the journey, and I'm going to be whole. If I get that promotion at work, I won't have to answer to anyone. My boss is going to be out of my life, and I'm finally going to be happy. My problems will be behind me. If I can get a real friend, if I can just get one real relationship, I'm finally gonna be whole. I want you to hear me this morning. Promotions, degrees, and friends are good things. Actually, what James and John wanted, influence on its own, is a really good thing. But hear me, it is not a great thing. 
It's a good thing, but it's not a great thing. It's not true greatness. It's not an ultimate thing. You get all of those things, you'll come to the end of yourself and go, oh my gosh, is that it? Is this greatness? Have I really arrived? It's really interesting. I heard a statistic reading a book last year that said, once you make over, I think it was like $78,000 a year, the happiness curve falls off dramatically. So like between 78 grand and a million dollars a year, people were not that much marginally happier the more that they accrued. It's fascinating. But our broken ambition continues to lead us there. Can I tell you this morning where I took my broken ambition, especially early on in my life, I took my broken ambition to being a pastor and a leader. Uh-oh. And in that context of leadership and pastoral ministry, my definition of greatness had mainly to do with three things. I wanted to be unusually successful for my age. I wanted people to go like, man, I can't believe all this stuff that he does. He's, he's so young. He's this wonder boy. I wanted to, yeah, <laughs> I'm letting you into my inner life. Uh-oh, it's, we're getting to know each other real well this first week, okay? I wanted, the other thing I wanted was to be known and respected by people that I thought mattered. Like, man, if, if this particular guy thinks that I'm amazing, I will really have arrived and the other thing that I wanted, I wanted to influence large numbers of people. I was like, that's what it means to matter. I could really have um, lots of people following me. People just cry. When I talk, they just cry immediately because I'm so good, right? All this was going on in my soul. It was broken ambition. And here's why I'm telling you this story. When I got into the game of ministry, when I, when I gave my life to this and things were not explosively large, famous, and fast, they were slow growing, they were anonymous, nobody knew who I was, and they were small, you know what my ambition, my broken ambition did? It told me that I had failed at the calling on my life. It was an accuser. I want you to hear me, broken ambition is one of the greatest sources of discontentment, disappointment, and discouragement in the world. What if you try and don't make it? It eats you alive when your definition of, of greatness is broken. Why is our ambition broken? See, our, our ambition for greatness is as old as humanity. Genesis 3, in fact, tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God because they wanted to be as great as he was. Satan told them that when God commanded them not to eat of a certain tree, that he was blocking their ambition for greatness. Satan said, man, God knows that you'll be like him when you eat of this tree. That's why he's holding out on you. He's trying to block you from something. I don't want the irony to be missed on you in, in all of this stuff right here. A misplaced desire for greatness ends up robbing you of the experience of actual greatness. Ah, oh, it's hard. 
That's hard to wrestle with. I want, I want to give you a couple of questions to ask yourself this week. These are good to take a picture of or write down in your notebook. Number one, what is my working definition of greatness? What do you actually believe it is? Number two, where do I act, actually believe God is blocking my ambition for greatness? Like if you were really honest with yourself, where would you believe like, man, if I follow Jesus, he's actually holding something out from me. He's trying to rob me of something. And then number three, where do I have a misplaced desire for greatness? Where are you just like James and John? Thinking that greatness is power, is rising to authority. Where are you like me who had this broken sense of I'm going to matter because of notoriety or numbers or acclaim? Where is it misplaced? Jesus doesn't just identify that we have misplaced desires. He actually is going to redefine true greatness for us. And that's point number two, ambition redefined. Ambition redefined. I, uh, in this season, it's really exciting. I'm teaching my son how to drive. He's, uh, he, for some context, he's three, okay? Um, that, I feel like that's an important part of the story, right? So we, uh, when I back our car out of the driveway, we have some street parking at our house and driveway parking, so I gotta do the, do the dance. You know the dance of cars in and out of the driveway. And so usually when I'm backing the car out of the driveway, I'll put Bennett on my lap and I'll let him put his hands on the steering wheel and we'll just back right out on the street. And I get neighbors walking by sometime and they see me get into the car with my son on my lap and every, everybody gets their phone out to call the police. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not leaving. I'm just parking. Um, and so often now when we get in the car, Bennett likes to say, hey, can I drive? Like when we go to church this morning, he's like, hey, would you mind if I drove to church this morning? I would definitely mind, okay? It would not go well for anybody. I want you to think about this for a second. How cruel of a father would I be if my son, my three-year-old son said, hey, can I drive? And I said, sure, here are the keys. I'll be back by, uh, can you be back by noon? Perfect, all right, we'll see you later. That would be madness, wouldn't it? Would never do that. It would be wrong. If I were to give him his request, it would be cruel. And that's where Jesus takes it in this passage. Look back at verse 38. It says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We are able, they say to him. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You don't know what you're asking. When Bennett asked me to drive, it's like, Dude, I know you like backing out of the driveway, but you do not know the complexity of what you are asking here. Here's the translation. Here's what Jesus is saying. You think that by asking for greatness, you are asking for influence, for luxury, for clout, for power. But what you are actually asking for when you want to be great is for servanthood and suffering. 
Is that what you want? And our friends, James and John, God love them, just like us sometimes, they are still so deluded in reality that what's their response? Jesus like, can you, can you be baptized into suffering like I am? Can you go through what I go through? And they say, yup. They still don't see it. Sure, Jesus, if you make us great, we can do whatever you need us to do. Jesus' response right here should sober us for a moment this morning. Look at verse 39 again. It says, um, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. If you follow Jesus, I want you to hear me this morning. If you follow Jesus in this world, you will suffer. Welcome to church. <laughs> you see, Christianity, depending on where you moved from, this will be new to you. Depending on if you move from a larger city or something, this will not be new. But Christianity is not going to gain you any yardage socially in Champaign-Urbana. Like people are not going to find out that you're a Christian and go, that's amazing. Many people won't. It will not gain you influence, but I want you to hear me really clearly. It will gain you Christ. Amen. You get him. There's nothing better to have in this universe. Friend, that is the only reason a definition of greatness that includes suffering can be good news, is if you get Jesus. Because if you don't get him, it's not worth it. Can I tell you, if you don't get Jesus, if you're not willing to follow him, if you don't have relationship with him, this is a terrible Sunday morning hobby. Sleep in and get brunch. That's way more fun, right? But if you get the living Christ, there is nothing more valuable in this universe. Jesus even gives a parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man goes, he finds that there's a treasure in a field and he goes back home. He sells everything that he has to go buy this one field. And if you have seen the living Christ, that makes sense to you. I want you to see him for the first time this morning if you've never seen him. I want you to know him this morning. Look back at verse 41. After all this happens, the disciples, the other disciples, this is the 10, the rest of the disciples with him, they began to be indignant at James and John. They get mad, not because their friends are bothering Jesus here, but they get mad because they weren't the ones who asked first. Like, you can't just come out and ask, right? It's like getting mad at the teacher's pet, right? Like you just, you can't come out and ask for that. We've got to kind of quietly play the angle and get the influence here. Their hearts were in the same shape as James and John. They just weren't bold enough or maybe silly enough to say it out loud. Verse 
this moment when everybody gets mad, everybody's freaking out, they're all angling for influence, this is what causes Jesus to stop the conversation and redefine greatness for once and for all. Look back at verse 42, it says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Like Jesus right here, he's saying, here is the world's model of greatness and ambition. That's when he says the Gentiles, that's what he's talking about, the worldly model of this. And notice he even says, those who are considered rulers. He doesn't even say the actual rulers. He's like, here's how posers think about greatness. This is the heart of their ambition. Did you see it? Rise to as much authority as possible. Gain authority that you can lord over other people. And so that you can have less and less responsibility, right? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, give everything to everybody else. I'm going to control people. I'm going to control the situation. And embracing that model of greatness is a mistake on many levels, but here's two important ones. Number one, ultimately you will start doing whatever it takes to get there. And people become machinery who perform tasks for you. Relationships become all about influence and networking, not about love and servanthood. And here's the second way that model of leadership is, that model of greatness is broken. You were never made for that kind of power. It consumes you, it crushes your soul to gain and gain and gain influence to lord over other people. Hear me, only God is made for that kind of influence. We're we're re-watching the Lord of the Rings in my house right now. Any nerds in the house? Okay, there we go, we got a few. It was a subdued woo except for the one, so I, I, I got you, I hear you. And the thing that's been sticking out to me as we watch over and over, if you've seen it, this ring of power, it just corrupts the souls of men. As soon as they get it, they start conniving for power. They can't handle the influence, right? Because they weren't made for it. And in verse 43, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, it must not be so among you. In other words, this is not the way that my disciples think about greatness. We're going to think about it upside down. You see, if you're new to Champaign, if you're new to New City, we, we planted this church last year and we looked at these verses and said, what, what if we took Jesus at his word right here and said that our community would be marked by a glory and a greatness that is upside down from the rest of the world? What if we tried imperfectly, but in submission to Jesus, we tried to plant that kind of church? The first thing that we started by doing is we drew our org chart upside down. So the people who have the most responsibility are not at the top. The people who have the most responsibility are at the bottom. Why? Because Jesus's model of leadership is upside down from the world. It's different. You do not ascend to authority. You descend to responsibility in the kingdom of God. 
See, some of you walk into this room and you have been wounded by spiritual authority before. You have seen authority used the way that the world uses authority where it's lorded over you. The people that you may have even had ambition to be like prove themselves to be untrustworthy or even abusive. Can I tell you, number one, I'm sorry that happened. They got it wrong. They got it wrong. And can I give you good news this morning? Jesus is particularly tuned in to the hurts of people who have been harassed by bad leaders. In Matthew 9, Jesus looks out at the crowds and he sees them harassed and helpless. And it says he has compassion on them. Those, the, the words in the Greek there, it's like he feels, gut level compassion is what Jesus has toward people. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. This means he doesn't just understand in the abstract that you suffer. It means that he has suffered alongside you. Nobody else can do that the way the living Christ has. So, so far, Jesus has undone our whole category for what greatness and ambition look like. But in verse 44, he's going to redefine for us what it actually looks like. Look back at verse 44. And whoever would be first, whoever would be great among you, must be slave of all. That word slave is the word doulos in Greek. In case you're a Greek nerd, there you go. That was for you. What it usually means in the New Testament is a bond servant. And here's what a bond servant is. It is a person who commits their life to another even when they have the privilege to leave. Like they, they may say, hey, I'll serve you for a certain period of time and uh, to pay off a debt. But then a biblical bond servant, they get to the end of that time and they say, I love this person that I'm serving. And so guess what? I'm gonna stay and serve them for the rest of my life. And Jesus says that is the posture of holy ambition. A person who becomes a servant a willing servant to others. So what is biblical greatness? Biblical greatness is to willingly serve others with our lives, not measuring their worthiness to be served by human standards. Oftentimes we look at people and we go, I'm not serving that guy. That guy stinks. That guy's no good. That guy treated me badly, right? No, no, no. The biblical definition says to become a slave to all, to become a servant. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. A couple of questions I want us to ask here. Number one, is my definition of greatness backwards? Are you thinking that greatness and ambition means to get all the authority you can to lord it over people? Or is your definition of greatness to get all the authority you can to serve people? Number two, how would Jesus' definition of greatness free me? Listen, if you've got the world's definition of greatness coming in here, you are a slave to it. And Jesus calls you to come and be a slave of him. He is a good master. 
He is a kind Lord. He is worth following. And when you let go of that old definition of greatness and you embrace Jesus' way in this world, you find the freedom, the easy yoke and light burden of King Jesus. And number three, am I a willing servant to all? Who is disqualified from being served by you in your mind? Who do you look at and go, man, I'll serve everybody but, but them? This week as I've been thinking about that with everything that's unfolding in Afghanistan right now, I'm going, I would have a really hard time serving the Taliban. Like, man, if I'm honest, there's anger in my heart, and I think part of that's righteous anger. When someone does evil, we should be angry about it. But Jesus served his enemies. His enemies. That is the biblical model of greatness. And that leads us into Point number three, which I think is the most important one here, the ambition of Jesus himself. The ambition of Jesus. Verse 45, look, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what's been hitting me as I'm thinking about that verse this week. If Jesus is really the Son of God, here's what that means. He has been the theme of heaven's praises forever. There is no more worthy being in the entire universe than the living, ruling, reigning Christ. That one, Jesus, deserves to be served by every person in every corner and every place of the globe. And yet he is the one who came to serve. Here's the question I've been asking. If that's who Jesus is, why in the world is he serving me? Why me? It can be nothing more than free grace. We do not deserve to be served by King Jesus, but yet what does he do? Philippians 2 tells us he humbles himself, puts on human flesh to the point of death, even death on a cross to redeem you. The son of man, Jesus, made it the ambition of his life, death, and resurrection to bring glory to God by saving you. You see, almost every civilization in history has a, has a creation myth or a story, and what usually happens is that if the God steps into creation, he immediately says, everybody look at me. Worship me. And Jesus, make no mistake, he is worthy of all worship, but he does something provocative in that he lays his life down to save his people to give his life, the text says, as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel message. Jesus in my place. To believe the gospel is to believe that Jesus' perfect life is the life you should have lived but didn't. It is to believe that the death Jesus died is the death you deserve to die, but that he died in your place. 
and that his resurrection is not only his now, but it is credited to you by faith that you are given the reward of Jesus. He is your substitute. He stands in your place. That is the heart of the gospel right here in this verse, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, I want you to hear this this morning. The solution to your broken ambition is not just to think differently this morning. The solution to your broken ambition is to believe the gospel. When you see how big your sin is, how big your debt is before the God of the universe, and you realize how big and how holy he is, it brings you to a place of complete humility. A place of saying, I realize all I bring to this equation, Jesus, is my need for you. That's all I've got. You see, when Jesus served you, it wasn't just that he did a nice thing for you. He did the thing for you. Band, you guys can come on up. He walked into enemy territory, and while you were actively fighting against him, he grabbed you and carried you home. That is what the Lord Jesus has done in the gospel. And so, friends, this morning, Jesus does not find your desires for greatness too large. He finds them far too weak. We have misunderstood greatness in this world but if you come to Jesus today, whether you've never believed the gospel or you have, you've been walking with Jesus since you were born, the invitation is to the same gospel. To believe in Jesus who will take you and all of your approval hungry and image obsessed mess and he will humble you and will bring actual impact through your life. He will make your life count in this world. There is a better way of ambition. I invite you to come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, um, man, we confess that our ambition so often is, is broken. And Lord, especially for college students coming into this room who have a hunger, an ambition, a desire to make a difference, I'm praying that right now you will set something in motion in them that changes the trajectory of their future. That instead of grabbing power to exalt themselves, they will take whatever influence you give them and they will use it to serve the very least. Just like you've served us. Holy Spirit, have your way in this room. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we wanna respond to the word. We don't just wanna be hearers of the word, we wanna be doers of the word. And so if I can ask you today, first reflect Reflect, think, what area of obedience is God calling you to? What new belief, new pattern of living? Is he calling you to become a Christian today in the gathering? Reflect on what God would have for you.
Number two, we remember. We take the Lord's Supper here to remember. If you are a follower of Jesus, when you come to this table and you take a small wafer and some grape juice, what you are remembering is that Jesus laying his life down was him serving you. You're saying that death was for me. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, don't take the Lord's Supper today. Sit and reflect. Ask, what would it look like to believe in Jesus? Talk to the person who invited you today. Say, man, I, uh, I, I want to follow Jesus. What, why is this meal important to you? And then finally, number three, we rehearse. When we sing here in a minute, I don't want this to be missed on you. We are joining all the people of God for all ages singing worship to our King. This is a dress rehearsal for eternity this morning. Okay, so I want you to sing joyfully, sing loudly. If you're like, I'm not a good singer, Bible says, make a joyful noise. Like, joyful doesn't have to be pretty, okay? Go for it. Let's sing to our King together. New City, I love you. Respond when you're ready.